financial needs of a business go beyond tax and attest services. That's why CTBK goes beyond accounting services and offers outsourced solutions through their affiliation with CFO Solutions Plus. These additional services allow clients to focus on their operational and long-term strategic goals. Trust CTBK's outsourced solutions to provide cost-effective, value-added financial services tailored to your company's needs. Call CTBK at 716-630-2400. Again, 716-630-2400. Or go to ctbk.com to learn more about CTBK's outsourced solutions. Welcome to another edition of Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. I'm Tim Graham of The Athletic, here with my usual co-host, Jonah Bronstein of the New Bronstein Times, which was recently acquired by WIVB Channel 4 uh, in a huge huge acquisition. Um, was CTBK involved in that? I think I've asked you that before, but I, I don't remember what the... In brokering that, well, we had a lot of high-powered attorneys, so CTBK just might have been part of the dream team that helped to negotiate this merger and acquisition. That's great. I'm happy for you. Uh, you're playing hurt today, though, uh, from what I understand. Um, yeah, a little bit under the weather, and I'm going to a high school game later, but haven't felt like my best self for the past 12 to 48 hours. Hopefully that shakes it off sooner than later. It's not a concussion, if anybody's worried about that. I do not have a concussion. Well, yes, you have passed concussion protocol, just as Tua Tagovailoa did last Sunday against the Buffalo Bills and gets ragdolled almost right on cue against the Cincinnati Bengals last night. I want to talk to you about that, Jonah, because it is a topic that's worthy of exploration, regardless of whether or not the Buffalo Bills were impacted by uh, how Tua Tagovailoa seemed to have suffered a head injury against the Bills, was able to come back in and his return to the game, uh, proving probably consequential in that game, even though the Dolphins barely ran any plays in that game, he was able to hit on a couple of big ones and do enough to beat the Buffalo Bills, who ran 90 plays, gained 497 yards, and somehow lost the game. Pretty incredible. Uh, but also as incredible is what we've seen out of Tua Tagovailoa over the past six days. What would it be in a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday? a five-day span in which he seems to suffer a head injury against the Bills. It is labeled a back injury. He comes back into the game. And then against the Cincinnati Bengals on Thursday night uh, with the world watching, gets thrown on his head and put on a spine board and carted off uh, the Cincinnati Bengals field. Um, Jonah, we happen to be watching the game together. Uh, when it happened and the reaction from everybody was universal. It was a scary injury. And my, I guess my visceral reaction, since you were standing right next to me and you can attest was not necessarily of sympathy. It was anger uh, at the NFL and the Miami dolphins and everybody who's involved in this, that, that, that uh, something could happen in which a guy suffers a, a catastrophic, potentially catastrophic brain injury enough. Well, one man's catastrophic is another man's um, incidental, I guess. But when he is holding that fencing posture of his hands and arms out in front of him involuntarily, that's a seizure. 
that is not the fencing posture. When somebody gets knocked down, you see it in boxing, you see it in MMA, you see it in all kinds of collision sports, the hands go up and that is the body involuntarily while unconscious trying to protect itself. And uh, that's what Tua Tagovailoa is doing in front of the world last night on Thursday night football. Um, the NFL has a lot of questions to answer as do the Miami dolphins as to what happened with Tua Tagovailoa against the bills and why he was allowed to be on the field on, on Thursday night. Yeah. Well, and the Miami dolphins are, answering these questions uh, we might not be satisfied with the information they're providing but it isn't something that i think the the dolphins the nfl and the nflpa are running from addressing the issue and uh mike mcdaniel the head coach from the dolphins gave his version of events and what he thought about what happened with Tua Tagovailoa, both against the bills last weekend and last night against the Bengals. last night was awful to watch uh just seeing somebody take that kind of uh, injury, head impact on the turf, and as you mentioned, the the symptoms, the kind of involuntary reaction to that, and realizing that uh, you know concussions are bad all the way around, but that one looked like a really bad concussion. And the way he was stretchered off the field, that doesn't happen with every head injury. Uh, it's it's sad to see that some of the things the league has tried to do with rules to protect the quarterbacks and helmet technology and different being more aware of the dangers of concussions haven't totally made the game safer for players. I think concussions probably occur less than they did years ago, but maybe not. I don't really know those statistics. It doesn't seem like there's been a huge drop-off. There maybe have been less violent helmet-to-helmet hits, and that has led to some reduction in head injuries, but there still seems to be a lot of head injuries, and there just seems to be players in the concussion protocol week after week, uh, especially linemen who get those uh, – what they call the micro concussions, hitting their heads against other linemen quite often. But I'm not nearly as outraged about the way things were handled during the Bills game and the supposed perception by many that the Dolphins covered up a concussion. The NFL is helping the Dolphins cover up a concussion and pretending that he got a back injury instead of a concussion. Uh, I gave the Dolphins the benefit of the doubt and their team doctors and the independent neurologists for that. And I'm still willing to give all the involved parties the benefit of the doubt that they're going through an investigation and looking into it. And maybe there were mistakes made, but I don't think there was a grand conspiracy to hide uh, to his head injury last week against the Bills. Just to screw I agree the Bills with that. Victory. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I don't think that it was you use the word conspiracy. I, that's the word I would use, too. Uh, it, that, and that's what it would take to cover something like that up. I'm actually willing to give the Dolphins and to a tag of Aloha and, and, the, and whatever independent neurologist involved in, in clearing him against the bills, the benefit of the doubt. Uh, I think it's possible that he did have a back injury. Um, I think as somebody who has back problems that have given me uh, serious problems that have sent me to the ER a couple of times, uh, I think I probably have looked like that trying to get out of bed a couple of times. That's not a head injury. I think the guy may have legitimately been having back spasms locking up and your legs go out from underneath you. Your, your sciatic gets affected. I, I think that's possible. Um, but in retrospect, it seems suspicious. Uh, and uh, I think that erring on the side of caution is paramount when it comes to head injuries. So I guess uh, you and I both are maybe caught in this middle ground of being willing to give that benefit of the doubt uh, from last Sunday against the Bills. Uh, but also when you see what happens, I mean, is that just a 
a grave coincidence that five days later he's thrown on his head. He has this involuntary seizure on the field. Uh, and all, I mean, I guess it is possible that one has absolutely nothing to do with the other, but it's also possible that they are linked. And uh, the NFL uh, has said that it is still investigating what happened against the Bills. It is not as though the Dolphins have been cleared, even though we've heard the Dolphins' explanations. Mike McDaniel has had multiple news conferences talking about Tua Tagovailoa and the follow-up exams and whether you know, defending that it was truly a back injury and not a head injury. Well, the NFL hasn't concluded its, its investigation yet. And I urge everybody uh, to check out a nine-minute interview that NFL Network's Judy Batista did with NFL Chief Medical Officer Alan Sills about uh, what goes into all of these on-the-spot, real-time concussion evaluations on game day when the player is pulled off the field and given these what's called a SCAT test, a sport concussion assessment tool, uh, it's called. And it's an on-the-spot thing. We've heard from former players who say that these things are easy to fool if you know what to do. Uh, you know, there are things that can be done to, to fudge and, and get through it. Uh, but anyway, I urge people to check out that interview. I, I uh, posted it on Twitter, or you can check out uh, Judy's uh, Twitter page. Uh, she's also posted it. Um, but, but there are a lot of things, potential loopholes. Uh, there are the idea of this independent neurologist. I don't think that it can be considered 100% independent. Where is this doctor from? Is he from South Florida? Is he a Dolphins fan? Uh, Is he, um, you know, where, what type of practice does he have? Does he see players? Now they're supposed to be totally independent, but these are approved by both the league and the NFL Players Association. How truly independent can these doctors be? Perhaps they are. Maybe this guy doesn't know whether a football is inflated or stuffed with feathers. I mean, maybe he's totally ignorant on even the game, let alone the Dolphins. But you're on the sideline with the team. You have the crowd, the euphoria. You know, there's all kinds of things that can get that can seep into your being, even if you're independent. You're back there. You're talking to this guy. You see how excited he is, how much he wants to get back in the game. And you maybe have a tendency to want to side with the team doctor. And the team doctor says he's got to get back out there. And again, I don't want to totally impugn this independent neurologist credentials because I don't know. I'm just throwing out possibilities there. But I would like to know. And Alan Sills, the the chief medical officer of the NFL, says that the NFL will be transparent in its investigation and release the results of their findings. Of course, the NFL has a really poor track record of releasing their findings on things like Dan Snyder and Deflategate and Spygate. And just because this guy says they're going to be transparent, I think I'm too much of a cynic to just totally buy into that. Anyway, Jonah, I just said a lot. Um, I'm not sure where you are, or what you want to add or what this discussion, uh, where we, where we take it from, but I, I, to me, seeing somebody, um, treated like a piece of meat, which is what the NFL is uh, on a weekly basis. Uh, but to see it in such alarming fashion, um, but that's what sports is. That, that's how, that's how sports, that's how collision sports are. And I think that there, maybe this is totally unavoidable, but there's just something about this situation that seems as though it could have been uh, mitigated, maybe not totally prevented, but there are, there are things that can be done. There are still work that can be, that, that can be done to, to help uh, 
these guys not get totally knocked out on the, on the playing field? Well, I'll react to a few things you said and what you just said at the end of that monologue relates to a question you asked earlier about whether, do I think this was a coincidence? I do think it was a coincidence that Tua got suplexed on the back of his head uh, last night after taking a similar hit in the previous game. I think that the play that happened last night causes a concussion and a major head injury, uh, whether Tua had even played the previous week. And this could have probably so, before. but we saw his head snap on the back of the, on the field when Matt Milano pushed him to the ground, you know, he well, yeah, hit, yeah. but first, you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a head injury. It wasn't a classic head injury of helmet to helmet, or, you know, it was him getting pushed back. He kind of took the push. It wasn't like he even fought the push. He was like, all right, you're pushing me back. Here I go. And his head, the way he hit and his head snapped back onto the, onto the grass at hard rock stadium. And, um, you know, so that, that is what seemed to, to be the, the issue last week. Anyway, I just wanted to mention that's two back of the head shots in, in five days. Right. But I don't, I wouldn't make the assumption that without him taking that hit five days ago against the bills, five days prior, that he would have jumped right back up from the hit. Oh, that's true right. because it was, yeah, what happened blow. Thursday night was a vicious shot. And that right. was, yeah, it probably gives you a concussion uh, or a problem. Does it give you the seizure? Do you totally seize up? Well, um, we don't, we don't know. I don't know. And I don't think you have the medical qualifications to really know. Not now, how dare you, you personally, but how dare any, you? anybody watching the game on television. And, and so I hope that we will find out whether uh, to his concussion last night was worse or the symptoms or the recovery from it is made worse by what's called second impact syndrome because he might have had a prior head injury five days before whether we i'm not sure we know whether that's the case now but I, hopefully when the investigation's concluded possibly in the same exact spot with the way both of those hits kind of somewhat resembled each other right, possibly but possibly not that's what i'm saying i'm, I'm hoping yes. that the doctors explain this to us. And if that is the case, we will find out uh, definitively and not have to make our own judgments based on what we saw on television or on Twitter. And I think that was my biggest takeaway. I watched that interview Judy, De P Judy Batista did with Dr. Alan Sills before this podcast. I thought it was, we learned a lot from watching that video and there, I think it toned down the rhetoric, at least for me, quite a bit. And my biggest takeaway was him saying that the doctors are not going to make their diagnosis based on symptoms they saw on television and on video and that there's ways that doctors and neurologists will conduct tests on Tua and figure out what happened without relying on viral videos. And I think that a lot of the reaction on Twitter from people in the media who don't have the same medical connections but might be very knowledgeable and educated about concussions and concussion in sport, but everybody was making a determination based on what they saw on TV, specifically with the, the issue that may have happened in the Bills game. I think last night was pretty obvious what happened. But a lot of people have made the decision already that that was a concussion, that they noticed the symptoms of a concussion, that the back injury is a farce and a, and a sinister made-up story by the Dolphins or Tua and his agent. And I'm not going to make that. And the NFL would have to be complicit in that too, right? And, and Tua himself and his family. I, I think that if, I do think it's possible that he did have a head injury and the doctors made a mistake or failed to do their job properly and misdiagnosed him or uh, maybe subconsciously looked the other way when they shouldn't have and, and took his 
word when he said that it was his back that was hurting and not his head or something like that. But I don't think there were any of the doctors, even the team doctor and also the independent neurologist, believed that he did have a head injury and chose to go along with the other, you know, false narrative. I, I just don't think a doctor who's qualified would do that. Maybe that's happened in the past. I know there are a lot of stories about team doctors doing what the team wants and not on the player's behalf. But I think if that was the case, that there'd be more outcry from Tua or his family or his agent. And the NFLPA is pushing this and investigating it, but I haven't seen really strong statements from the NFLPA that they think that it was a concussion and that someone intentionally hid the findings of that. It seems to be more, we want to know more and we want to look into this and take a second look at it. Yeah, the NFL Players Association obviously is going to side with the players. That doesn't necessarily mean with specifically to a tag of Aloha in this specific case. Uh, it is more a, a, a situation where the NFLPA doesn't want the league to unilaterally change the way it looks at these things, which sometimes uh, that could be uh, what the, the push is going to be from fans, uh, from the media regarding changing of the protocol. Well, the NFL can't just do that. Uh, on its own. The NFLPA is a partner in this when it comes to uh, these uh, these concussion exams and deciding whether or not a player uh, in, in, uh, goes back into the game. But uh, one of the things I want to mention that I was really uh, educational for me with Alan Sills, there are only three things uh, that automatically rule you out from returning to a game. Number one is the fencing posture that we saw out of Tua Tagovailoa last night. The other two things are amnesia or confusion. Now, beyond that, it's, it's, uh, it's up to the doctors to determine. And it sounds to me as though that is an avenue for a player to kind of talk his way into the game. You know, if he's not showing any of those three things uh, and he's seeing flashing lights, if he's seeing, you know, there's all kinds of things that go with migraines or, you know, head injuries. Uh, if he has a pain in his head, uh, and he's able to talk his way through it and say, no, I know where I am. I'm in Miami Gardens, Florida. I'm in Hard Rock Stadium in the Dolphins locker room. It's it's Sunday. Joe Biden's the president. Ron DeSantis is the governor. You know uh, how many you're holding up four fingers, uh, you know, all those things. But he's got a pounding headache and seeing flashing lights. He can get back on the on the field. Theoretically, I'm saying. Because the only three things are, if you don't answer those questions right, you're not sure where you are, you're confused, uh, you say Woodrow Wilson is the president, well, then you're not going to go back into the game. But there are other things, and yes, there's a sport concussion assessment tool, they check your, you know, they're going to check your eyes, they're going to look at different things, but if you can play it off, it sounds as though you have a chance to get back onto the field. Now, can you legislate that? Can you take that out of the game? Probably not. Players have been doing that for for, since the game was invented. Um, but uh, it sounds to me is that there is enough of wiggle room for all kinds of um, uh, subjective decisions to be made uh, when it comes to even these doctors, even the independent neurologist, I don't want to say can be fooled, but can probably be talked into, all right, this guy's okay, and um, go back out there. Um, you know, we, we see... And of course, this was a long time ago, and, and we've learned exponentially more about uh, sports-related head injuries uh, in the past 20 years. But 
it's reminiscent to me of uh, the Joe Macy situation. He had a subdural hematoma. That was not a concussion. But imagine, I mean, I know you followed that story pretty closely, Jonah. Um, there were doctors, preeminent neurologists, the best in the country who were at odds as to whether or not it was safe for Joe Macy to fight again. And Robert Cantu was in Joe's corner, literally, after, after he saw him, Cantu would actually work Joe's corner. Robert Cantu is one of the NFL's top, you know, um, concussion specialists. You see him interviewed on Real Sports and NFL Network all the time. But then there were other doctors who are just as prominent saying, I'm not signing off on this. I'm not going to get there. Were neurologists in Nevada who see boxers and have treated brain related, um, you know, not only dementia, but death, uh, things like that. And they're saying, absolutely not. We're not giving this guy a license to fight in our state. Um, so even the, the most educated doctors can disagree. And it sounds as though there's so much um, that can't really be told, especially in, in real time. On a Sunday afternoon, you're in the bowels of the stadium. The game is going on out there. You got pressures from the league and the players association and the team and their teammates. Man, we got to we got to hurry up and make a decision here. This guy needs to get back out on the field if he if he's ready or, you know, we, and, and, and do you have enough time to really make a legitimate diagnosis on the spot like that? Um and those are that's that's the that's the situation. I, I don't know. I don't know if there's well, really anything to correct in that. I'm just saying that's the way it is, and it's unfortunate. And it's not. And, and with the NFL, with every game being so important. All right, let's say just to use a different example in hockey, you can I, there's a team. The team might say, "All right, you're done for the night. Um, you're done for the night." But we have 81 more games. You know, we have so many games to play that if you need to be out for a week or so, all right, we can deal with that. But when you're the Miami Dolphins and you're playing the Buffalo Bills in your stadium, this is an important freaking game, and we can't let you rest up for a week. And we got another game in five days. If you're out this game with a concussion, you're ruled out for, for Thursday night probably because you're in concussion protocol. And I'm not saying that's a sinister thing to say or to insinuate, but shit, I wonder if that was mentioned. You know, hey, if he's out this game, he's out the next game, too, because we're not playing on Sunday. We're playing on Thursday. Well, but then you're assuming that this was a football decision and that it was known that he had a concussion. And I'm laying out the possibility. I'm not saying that's the case. I'm just saying, I mean, can't shouldn't we maybe at least bring up the possibility that that came into play? I mean, it's cynical. Yeah, I, mean, I know you bring up it's the cynical for me to say, it, but right. If you have the cynical viewpoint that this was a cover up then yeah, maybe that was some of the motivation for covering up the concussion. I think the default position in these cases should be that if a player is taken into the locker room to be evaluated for the concussion, that you first assume that he has a head injury, and then there's various ways to test out of that protocol and return to the game if it's determined that there was no head injury and we were just being overly cautious by running tests on this player. I think the way you explained a lot of things there would be that the initial assumption is he doesn't have a head injury and we're looking for various symptoms. And if we don't look hard enough or we look in the wrong place, we're not going to see evidence that he has a concussion. Um, so hopefully that's the way, you know, that's not the way that it was undertaken properly by these doctors. Maybe they made some mistakes Hopefully the investigation tells us whether 
uh, the protocol was properly fouled and whether Miami made a wrongful determination. But I guess I'm repeating myself here, but a lot of people have already made the drawn their conclusion that the Miami Dolphins knew he had a concussion. I know he had a concussion because I watched the football game on TV and I saw the symptoms that I believe uh, state that he had a concussion or are evidence that he had a concussion. And the Miami Dolphins and the NFL then made the decision to ignore all of that evidence and say he had a back injury and leak it to Ian Rappaport and all these other reporters, bring him back in the game because, you know, he had to come back and help the Dolphins beat the Bills because this is all a conspiracy against the Bills and their effort to go undefeated this season. And that everybody was in cahoots here in denying that it was a concussion, saying there was a back injury and then moving on and then throwing him back out there five days later and throwing caution. The Dolphins' official Twitter account did say he's being examined for a head injury. Now, that might have been whoever's running the Twitter account. Generally, that stuff comes officially from the PR staff from the sidelines. There is a member of the PR staff on the sideline who then gives the official press box announcement. Somebody puts it on, you know. So I, I guess I could get to a point where it says, well, we saw him wobble. It's clearly a head injury. Maybe somebody got ahead of it a little too much and just assumed it was he was going to get evaluated for a head injury. But that's an official statement from the team. Uh, that needs to be explained in, as part of this NFL investigation. Why did they tweet out he was being examined for a head injury if it was his back? Well, I would assume that he was examined for a head injury and they determined for whatever reason that there wasn't a head injury, but he did have a back okay, injury. Okay, yeah, that's, that makes sense. That, you're it right. It seems that like he sense. did have a back injury, a prior back injury. Like even if he did have a concussion that was not properly diagnosed last week, he also did have back and ankle injuries and appeared on the injury report with back and ankle injuries. I don't think those are fake injuries. No, No, they they were going to be like, you know what? He might get a concussion on Sunday. Let's say he's got a back injury four days before the game. So we can have that as a, as an excuse. We can tell, tell the neurologist. Oh no, no, no. See, look, he's actually on the injury report. We put him down for back injury. Uh, Yeah, you're right. That would, that would be, that would be dastardly. Uh, uh, Yeah. I'm not willing to go there. Right. And how many times in the games that we've covered, have we seen players pulled out of the game and, go into the locker room or the medical tent on the sideline being evaluated for a head injury. And they are later determined to be able to come back in the game. Josh Allen's done it a couple of times, I think. Right. It probably happens in almost every game that we cover with at least one of the teams. It doesn't always happen to the same team, the bills week after week, but every game I feel like that we cover in Orchard Park, it happens with at least one player on one of the teams, maybe not every game, but it happens quite often. So the Miami Dolphins aren't doing anything out of the ordinary by having a player get evaluated for a head injury and then determining that he's able to return to the game. Right. But there is sort of this belief that the Miami Dolphins are these evil figures because of some of the things that the owner Stephen Ross has done and the Brian Flores situation. And there's certain teams. Tom Brady trying, you know, just totally colluding or or what do you call tampering with the with the New Orleans Saints uh, head coach and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers quarterback. Right. And being accused of, you know, paying Brian Flores to throw games and, and having all of these, you know, evil actions on his resume, I guess is how I describe it. But there's certain teams now, it's kind of like the Patriots with cheating where you just make these determinations about their assumptions about their moral uh, standing. And, and, you know, the, then you just, decide that the Miami Dolphins did something wrong here because they have a bad owner that does a lot of wrong things in the past, right. but a morally upstanding franchise like the Buffalo Bills would never make this mistake. Yeah, you're right. 
never. They would never do this. Um, well, the, the Bills actually, I, I don't even know. I, I'd be pulling things off the top of my head, so I'm hesitant to go down that path. Well, no, but. I'll assume that the Bills would handle this properly, but I'm also assuming that the Miami Dolphins handled it properly uh, last Sunday against the right. Bills. Even if maybe they missed diagnosed a concussion, I think maybe the doc, I'm, I, you know, I don't know what happened. So maybe the doctors did miss something or do something incorrect in their evaluation of Tua Tagovailoa, but I don't believe that the Dolphins or the NFL or anybody involved intentionally did something of the sort. Right. I am, I am not there either. And I think I've been a little all over the place. I haven't necessarily been clear in that, but I think I did say right up at the top that I was actually willing to accept the back injury as true a week ago. I, I think it's just that there's a, there's a, so why am I mad? Okay. So that's a legitimate question, Tim. I'm glad you asked. Uh, I think I'm, I think what has me upset is that when it comes to head injuries, even though it's possible that it really was a back injury to me. And I side with these guys. I, I, I believe I'm on the player's side. When I say this, I am, I'm of the belief that it is perfectly okay. And it doesn't test your manlyhood to say, I need to tap out of this game or for a doctor to tell a guy, look, uh, you know, you, you don't have it today. And, uh, and you, if that means you're not going to play Thursday, then you're not going to play Thursday. But there is so much wrapped up into the machine still, even with these independent neurologists and the concussion protocol and the great strides that the NFL has made to uh, destigmatize head injuries among men, uh, alpha males, masculine dudes, uh, those guys who call Donald Trump sir all the time, you know, those manly men um, that it is okay to have a head injury. And I've interviewed too many people with dementia, with CTE. Um, and so when I see the possibility of a head injury uh, that we saw Sunday with, with Tua against the Bills uh, on the Matt Milano push, that I would like to see more caution and to say, okay, maybe it is a back injury, but this is your brain here. And then to see him ragdolled like he was a legitimate play. I mean, to get thrown down like that is, is a, you're not going to take that out of the game. Uh, it was not a dirty hit. It was a way to get the quarterback to the ground. Uh, the Bengals player didn't do anything nefarious, but to have to a crash at the back of his head onto the, the grass again for the second time in five days and to have his body go into a seizure right there in front of the world. I think to me, it just reminds me of the, the viciousness of the game. And I wish we didn't have to deal with it. And I do know that there are a lot of people who, you know, you like the big hits thinking about the Dawson Knox hit now. Okay. So the Dawson Knox hit, maybe I have more of a problem with that. You recall that one last Sunday, oh, yeah, Jonah. Yeah. Okay. Fly now fly. that's a play that I would like to see the spotter in the press box say, Look at this guy. I don't, I don't know. Maybe they did look at him, but the camera was on Dawson Knox right after that play. He's standing on the sidelines and doesn't look like he's getting any kind of sport concussion assessment tool being performed on him. He's getting ready to go back into the game. That was a serious collision with his head, and I would like to have at least seen him looked at, but 
you know, so anyway, I, well, so that reminds me of something or a question but there, I want to ask But then, well, just let me finish, just to finish that point. There are fans who want to see that in the game and I get that. And I used to stand up and go, Oh my God, what a fucking hit, you know, back when, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Now I see those hits and I think, Jesus Christ, you know, you think back of, you know, the story I wrote about Kyle Ocposo, the story I wrote about Daryl Talley, about Al B. Miller and Harry Jacobs. And I've written stories about people who don't know where they are. You know, people who played football for a few years and now have to be told every morning by their children what day of the week it is and what we're about to have for breakfast. And in Al B. Miller's case, dad, now don't leave the house because you'll you'll get lost uh, and you won't be able to find your way back home in your own neighborhood. You know, that it's that that's the shit that that. That that I don't like. Well, I, so I, guess that's, I don't know if you know the answer to this. You weren't at the game in Miami, but did the same neurology expert, the, the independent neurologist, evaluate Ryan Bates for the concussion that he had and he, you know, came out of the game and, and was in the protocol for, I think, a day or two after the game? I'm, get, I, I'm not sure, but the, just based on, and this is what I learned from Alan Sills's interview with Judy Batista. Again, I urge everybody to check it out. Very educational. He makes a mention that there are three independent neurospecialists there. One in the press box working with the spotter and then one on each sideline. So my assumption would be that you probably have a guy who works with your team for that day. However, when it comes to brain injuries and doctors, I would also like to thank maybe the guy closest, you know, or maybe the guy, you know, maybe they, I don't know if they have hard and fast lines that say, okay, you're working with the bills today. I'm working with the dolphins or it's all hands on deck. We just happen to be on opposite sidelines, keeping our eyes peeled. Uh, I don't, I don't know. But the, we would assume the same process was followed. Yes. Yeah, okay. And then as far as the bills, I, I don't know if we're implying that, you know, they didn't properly check on Dawson Knox for a possible head injury, but several players were pulled out of the game for heat illness. And I would believe that if the team doctors and the medical staff went to that length, that they also would have pulled a player out of a game if they thought he had a possible. Okay. Well, let's, let's explore that though, Jonah, just for practical purposes, you have so many players in need of medical attention on your sideline. Can you actually notice that Dawson Knox needs to be checked out right here? And I'm not saying that from a training standpoint, that's the, but I may be blaming the spotter more on that. We all saw that collision. He had the ball. It didn't happen away from the play. He had the ball in his hands. So everybody's looking at it. We saw like three or four replays of it on the broadcast. So if you're in the press box and you're paying any attention to this game, you saw a vicious head collision. Um, and I don't know. I and mean, again, maybe, maybe he was checked out and we just didn't see it on TV, but he was look, he, he came back into the game pretty quickly. Um, but the other thing too, to mention Jonah, I think you need to be on super, uh, you need to be super vigilant with head injuries when you're talking about uh, dehydration involved. And this goes back to my coverage of boxing and my knowledge of that. You talk about a guy who cuts weight um, and how dangerous it is to cut weight to just to make it. So that way you qualify for this championship fight tomorrow night. And I'm two pounds over. So I'm going to, you know, sweat it out in the sauna and get on, make, make weight. Um, and if you're dehydrated and that, I mean, this is a concern. I mean, I'm not making this up or pulling it out of my ass. I mean, the, the level of, you have a level of fluid between your brain and your skull. And if you're dehydrated, there's all kinds of things that have come into play of whether or not your, your body is able to sufficiently protect itself like it normally does just because you don't have 
you know, you're, you're dehydrated. So you got guys dropping because they're, they're cramping and all these other things. I mean, does that make them more vulnerable to, um, to a brain injury? And being overheated can also, you know, limit your motor skills a little bit, the control of your neck and being able to guard against the worst of a head injury. I don't know if there's really much you can do to actually prevent uh, the head trauma that occurs in football games, but there are different things that our bodies do with our necks and our muscles to not have as much whiplash and, and some of that stuff. And that's probably less able for a player to do when they're also suffering from heat illness or overheated, dehydrated, things like that. But that's a common thing. Again, I, I'm not a medical professional. There may be people rolling their eyes when they hear these things, but I've had, I've covered guys who died from fighting, you know, from boxing and they leave the ring on a stretcher and don't come out of the hospital. They die. And it's a, a big, it's a big debate in contact or in um, combat sports about making weight. Uh, and Real Sports did, uh, did a piece on it uh, with the uh, mixed martial arts uh, maybe a year or so ago. Uh, did a great piece on uh, these guys who make weight and they, it ruins their kidneys and all these, you know, things that they, they have, you know, shutdowns, system shutdowns sometimes. Uh, and I'm not talking even about that uh, drastic aspect of, of weight cutting. Um, but guys who cut their weight, get in the ring the next night. And, you know, that's there have been talks about um, doing uh, double weigh-ins. State of Nevada has been debating this for 30 years as to whether to do double weigh-ins the day before the fight and the day of the fight to make sure guys don't put on a bunch of weight. They balloon up with all this water weight and, uh, you know, they, they car, you know, carb up and do all this other stuff because it's dangerous to get into the, get into the ring dehydrated and get punched in the head. Um, anyway, I, I want to make one final point on this, yeah. that the NFL and in conjunction with the NFLPA and the investigations and the medical staffs and whatever comes of this has to do the right thing here. And the, by the right thing, I don't mean getting a pound of flesh from the dolphins and handing down a big punishment if the dolphins did something wrong, although maybe that becomes part of it. It's more finding the truth in this matter and then releasing the findings properly and communicating the truth to the public because of the trickle down effect to lower levels of football, high school youth, and make sure that the proper information and the proper protocols and the proper way to view concussions is handed down to people who are younger and people who can potentially be more vulnerable to the long-term effects of obtaining a concussion in a youth or a high school game. And I think Where that they also don't have independent neurologists on the sideline. They have trainers and football coaches who hopefully can make the right decisions without as many resources as the NFL has. Right. You know, I, I'm not exactly sure what the rule is in New York, but in the state of Ohio, you have to have an ambulance at a, at a high school football game. Um, so there are some do, yeah. trained medical professionals there, EMS, not necessarily doctors. My team doctor was a chiropractor uh, it, when, <laughs> when I played. Um, but, you know, that was the, that was the uh, leather helmet days. Uh, but you're right. I think Pop Warner, USA football, and you need to learn from this example. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier about the machismo aspect of it. It's okay to have a head injury. You're no less of a man. And I tweeted it out. A lot of people took it the wrong way. The, um, the, the Rocky scene where Pauly and the other, and he's like, no, no, he's not getting killed. He's getting mad. And he's taking just punch, you know, punch after punch after punch. Go get him, Rocky. That's what you're supposed to do. 
uh, to who was a clubber Lang. I don't know what it was, but he's getting the hell beat out of him. And his trainers are like, yeah, he's, he's, this is what a strategy it is. Um, no, it, I mean, we got to get, we got to move on from that. And I don't think that that's anything that's going to happen quickly. Uh, but this is a, a, a teachable moment, hopefully. And, um, we learn and, and I hope the NFL is transparent. It, it, that's what uh, the chief medical officer, Alan Sills did say on that interview with Judy Batista, that they are going to release the findings. They're still doing the investigation. Nobody's been cleared a lot of there. I saw that a lot last night, the dolphins were cleared of any wrongdoing. No, the, the investigation hasn't even been concluded yet. Um, so let's wait. And hopefully the NFL is transparent, which it is, does not have a reputation, a sterling reputation for, for being transparent, but let's see what they do here. Um, Joni, you mentioned, uh, youth football, high school football, a big game, uh, tonight. I know you wanted to talk about it. Um, and, and, and again, this is the only town I've worked in where I didn't cover high school sports. So educate me on this game tonight. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a good game, a competitive game. Kenesha's at Lancaster, two of the top four teams in the local poll, two teams that are ranked as class A, the largest classification schools in the state. But it's more of a historically significant game in the sense that, you know, Section 6 and private schools don't play each other very often. They rarely play. There are certain games. But even more rare is the best private school teams playing against one of the best public school teams. Keith McShay, who was a tremendous high school writer for the Buffalo News for the better part of two decades and is now working as the director of communications at Canisius, wrote a bit of an advanced story on the Canisius website about this and broke down all of the numbers in terms of how rare it is. And he says a game like this involving a team from Erie County hasn't happened since 1998, which is before Keith was on the beat, before you even moved to Buffalo. And that there was a game in 2014 between Canisius and Jamestown that was similar circumstances. I guess the difference there is Jamestown's a bit farther from the city. It's not quite the same of two local teams going at each other, but whatever. Um, but that game, let me just see what he had. The high school season preview story in 2014, the Buffalo News called that the game of the decade. So now we're in a new decade and it's happening again. So this is maybe potentially the game of the decade. Hopefully it's not like that, though. Hopefully this means that games like this are going to happen more often. If it's not Canisius and Lancaster playing every year, uh, having teams like Canisius and Lancaster, St. Francis being another high-powered private school and Bennett and other local schools and hopefully that these become more regular occasions and some of that is why the haven't they been the Jonah? It, educate me uh, on that why don't they do that in western so, new york as much as you would you would it, it just seems to make too much sense well it to, happens to play these games and a lot of other sports so it's really more an issue with football traditionally some of that is because for many years uh, Section 6 teams were only allowed to play seven games, and they usually had six league games. So it would leave one non-league game on the schedule, and oftentimes teams play a local rival like that. Like that would be the TNT game or the Ken East, Ken West game or something like that in that seventh non-league game. And also, but there was a long time where there was, and some of this still exists, where the top private school, the top public schools didn't want to play the top private schools because they were mad about, private schools recruiting off their rosters, off their JVs and their younger players. And there was a belief that if Lancaster goes and plays Canisius with some of their good sophomores, that that could only help Canisius, for example, recruit a player in the summer off of that Lancaster team. Like if Canisius were to win that game or 
I don't know what the real fear was that they'd be recruiting them, you know, on the sidelines during the game. But there was a belief that if the Section 6 schools played the Monsignor Martin schools, that that would only aid the Monsignor Martin schools in uh, getting all the best players to go to private schools and leave the public schools. And so the, and there was a bit of a uh, hostility and uh, hostility is the word from the best public schools against the best private schools for taking many of the most talented players uh, throughout the years. All right. Well, I mean, it, that's, a, that's unfortunate and I think it's an overreaction, but I guess it makes sense. But now they're allowed to play an eighth game public schools. And I think that opens up some more opportunities. And I think that's maybe a big reason why this game is happening this year. You also got Kanishas has a new coach, Craig Krasansky, who's been at Will South for 15 years. And maybe he comes into this, even though he's a Kanishas graduate, thinking, you know, I don't have any problem with playing. Although I don't really think the, the private schools ever really had a problem playing against the public schools. It was the other way around in that arrangement. But I think maybe a coach coming in from 15 years at a Section 6 school probably has a good relationship with Eric Rupp, the Lancaster coach, who's also the Lancaster athletic director. And that allowed, you know, maybe this game to be scheduled where with previous coaching staffs didn't have as good of relationships. Um, the, but the interesting thing for me in many ways is that some people are calling this the Keith McShable because of how many times he wrote that prep talk column, uh, begging and pleading and admonishing the section six schools for not playing these games. And now it's happening and involves the school where he works at. And I'm sure he'll be at the game on the sidelines covering in some capacity. He was doing that for the Canisius St. Joe's game the other day. So I think it's kind of cool that they're having this game and that Keith's a part of it. And the Lancaster town historian is Mary Jo Monin, who used to work with Keith McShay covering high school sports together side by side at the Buffalo News. Maybe this should be something like the McShay Monin Cup. Yeah, I'll, I'll be on the lookout for Mary Jo Monin to see if she's at that game and if she's facing the field or facing away with her back to the field. That will be in my notebook if I notice that. I should also mention real quick that this is also a crucial catch game that's raising money for the American Cancer Society. And uh, Eric Rupp, the Lancaster coach, his father died a few years back, and that's part of the motivation for this. And so if you happen to listen to this podcast and you do get inspired to maybe go to this game or pay some attention to this game, they are raising some money there for the American Cancer Society. Where's the game play, uh, taking place? At Lancaster, 7 o'clock on Friday, if, if we get this out there in time. And even if you don't go to the game, I think it's worth kind of noting the historical significance of these two teams playing each other. And it's one of the bigger non-league games of the year for any of these teams. Jonah, what's going on with UB football? UB has a rather big home game tomorrow. It's their homecoming game. It's against Mac East rival Miami. Uh, it could go a long way toward determining who wins the Mac East division, or at least determining uh, the pecking order between Buffalo and Miami. So it's Buffalo Miami week for the second straight week. Uh, UB after that 0 three start, they won last week at Eastern Michigan. They scored 50 points, which is the most they've ever scored in a road Mac game. Cole Snyder is settling in and looking like a good quarterback. I don't know if he's a excellent quarterback yet for this team, but I think he's given them better quarterback play than they've had in recent years. Even in the year when they were ranked in the top 25, it was a very run-oriented team with Kyle Van Trees being an excellent game manager and an excellent quarterback for that team. But I think Cole Snyder, who's a local from Southwestern High School, is probably a better pure passer than Kyle Van Trees is, and he's got better receivers than those teams had, so they're a better passing team. And for UB, winning one game changed a lot about the trajectory of their season. They're now 1-0 in the MAC. 
They, even with those three losses and losing to an FCS team on a Hail Mary at home, uh, they can still have a successful season and they can still do well in the MAC. And some of those early games, they seem like they matter at the time. But as you get later into the college football season for teams in a conference like the MAC, those early games don't really matter that much. They, they can matter in terms of bowl eligibility, but if you do well enough in your conference, you don't need those wins to be bowl eligible. And if UB were to win this game, they'll be 2-0 and in the MAC and absolutely contenders to win the division and possibly go to the MAC championship game. If they lose the game, they're really behind the eight ball because then they're 1-4. They would have to win five of their last seven games to be bowl eligible. Uh, they wouldn't be in as good of a position to potentially win the division and get that 13th game in the conference championship game. And they still have this schedule where they, you know, for the season, five home games and seven road games, and the last two games are at home. So these first 10 games on the schedule, they only have three home games, this being the second one. So it's going to be difficult for UB to make up ground if they lose this game and they fall to one and four and one and one in the MAC they would really have to get hot then to salvage the season. Good stuff. Good and stuff. One thing, we... Another story I'm working on, just if people are interested in this kind of thing related to UB is they're doing some different things program wide, but involved with the football team for mental health, mental illness awareness week, which is next week. And there's also something called college football mental health week. And they both run concurrently in the same week. And I'm writing a story about that for WIBB.com on the different trainings UB coaches have done, some of the things the UB women's soccer team is doing and their mindfulness training. The UB women's soccer is having their best season, their best start to a season in 23 years. They're the highest RPI that they've ever had. They've won seven straight games by shutout. Uh, and, and they believe that some of this mindfulness training that they're doing is a big reason why they've had this early season success. And so talk a little bit about what these teams are doing in honor of that. Another thing that happened at UB today, they renamed the – it used to be the Porter Quad at the Ellicott Complex on North Campus. It's now the Willie Evans Quad, and that's for the uh, running back on the 1958 team that was a star player on the team, and that team didn't go to Orlando for the Tangerine Bowl because Willie Evans and another black player wouldn't have been allowed to play in that game. That's always been a you know historically significant thing. That team's in the Greater Buffalo Sports Hall of Fame. Willie Evans is in the Greater Buffalo Sports Hall of Fame individually as well. And now that, uh, because there were some yeah, racist things in Porter's past, and, and so now that's being renamed, and, and they decided upon Willie Evans as being the person they're going to name that after. Righteous. Admirable move by the University of Buffalo there. Uh, Jonah, thanks for this. Um, Bill's at Ravens on Sunday. We didn't even really talk about that. What do you think? Well, why don't you give your, your quick take on what you think is going to happen? Are the Bills going to right the ship or fall to two and two? I, I think it would be pretty surprising with those Super Bowl expectations that they had. Even though a lot of us looked at this early schedule and thought there could be some difficult games, but I think we thought the first two were two of those most difficult games. Yeah, I think it's, it's pretty easy to reconcile the loss uh, at Miami last week uh, with all the injuries and the – the dehydration and the players just, you know, not being able to make it out of the game uh, in intact in one piece. Uh, the Bills, uh, with the different patchwork that they've had to do on the defense, they have extra time. They've had more uh, another week. Uh, I, I do like their chances. Uh, I don't know. I mean, Lamar Jackson's 
is a is a we're going to see two freakish quarterbacks uh, from the same draft class battling it out and um the weather could be an issue with hurricane ian and the remnants uh passing through uh, i haven't seen a latest report on that but uh, that's probably going to you know impact in some way uh we may see uh, a sloppy pitch uh, like we did in josh allen's uh, nfl debut a few years ago when the game was just uh rain nothing but rain and and slop and uh but the, the weather can be a great equalizer in that way and uh i don't know i think i'm going to pick the ravens to win the game uh a close one but i think you could reconcile this loss too i don't think this would be a bad two and two for the bills um they're still finding their way they're still finding their way through all these injuries and they need to pray that they don't have more but uh, if they can uh, have a have a spell where they don't lose any more critical players, then uh, I think that the the next man up mentality will have some some time to to grow, and uh, and they'll be fine in the long run. But I think they just might be in a, still in this phase of turbulence uh, with all their their personnel issues. They're still the betting favorites to win the Super Bowl. The odds have gotten maybe a little bit longer, but they still have the best odds of all the NFL teams. I will be curious to know whether that continues if they do fall to two and two and with the injuries mounting or if that changes the national perception about, I mean, Kevin Harlan called the bills, the best team in the league without any qualification on the broadcast last week. And I think a lot of people agree that they are the unquestioned best team in the league, but if they lose again, even with the injuries and a road game against another good opponent, uh, I think it's hard to call a two and two team, the best team in the NFL. Yeah, they'll still be at the top of a lot of power rankings, uh, but they already slipped. I don't think the Dolphins are going to stay up there. <laughs> I saw the Dolphins atop uh, some power rankings around the country. Um, different outlets had them there without Tua Tagovailoa and also with a, a loss. Uh, that's going to uh, cause them to slip down. I don't know that Teddy Bridgewater is going to be the, uh, you know, the the guy who's going to lead the you know the top team in the in the NFL according to power rankings. You could draw some comparisons to the Kansas City Chiefs from last year who started poorly in terms of record and weren't playing their best football early on and then got it together and ended up. The New England the Patriots football. would have that happen on a on a occasional basis. We'd, uh, let's say, five, six years ago, get to a situation where they're, they're off to a, a bad start and we're writing them off and it's time for Tom Brady to move on. And then three months later, they're holding the Lamar uh, Trophy. Um, so, yeah, it, this is a tricky game. I think that it could be dangerous. Uh, if the Bills were to lose this game, I think it would be too dangerous to start panicking or, or reading bad things into it. I think it would be an okay two and two. Uh, if they win the game, then that's really impressive. Um, but then a home game against Pittsburgh, which they're not as strong of a team as they had been in years past, but they won here last year and always a team that uh, with that coaching staff give the Bills trouble. Yeah, it's um, the Steelers are not an easy out. You know, they're just, they're too much of a quality organization, regardless of whether it's going to be Trubisky or Pickett, uh, what's, what's happening with them at quarterback. It hasn't been smooth, but yeah, they're, they're going to be a tough out. Um, Jonah, thanks for this. Uh, have fun. Uh, hopefully you, you continue to mend and are able to survive Canisius Lancaster tonight and you be Miami tomorrow. Busy weekend for you. Uh, and maybe uh, you can, uh, you know, uh, Fit in a little post game tonight. We'll see about that.
Maybe, maybe more likely tomorrow when I'm already out in the uh, post-game territory. Another thing going on tomorrow that I won't be covering, but is the first ever home game for the Buffalo Bills wheelchair football team playing against the Cleveland Browns wheelchair football team at Buffalo Riverworks at 4 o'clock Saturday. Yeah, that's a cool thing. I've seen the advertisements for that. That puts a smile on my face when I see it. I, that's, maybe I'll go check that out. Thanks for reminding me of that. What, what Do you know the particulars on that? Can you... That's about as much as I know. I know the Buffalo Bills are involved to the extent of allowing that team to use the name and the uniforms and that Mary Wilson prevented, presented them with the uniforms earlier and that, you know, Adam Page, the local sled hockey player, is on that team. And maybe there's other sled hockey players. He was a Team USA sled hockey player also playing. But uh, that's about the extent of it that I know. But I do know that's a cool thing that happens and that they're playing a home game because that team started last year and didn't play any local game so this is the first i believe the first home game for the buffalo bills wheelchair football team all right a full weekend of football jonah thanks for this uh thank you to everyone out there for checking out tim graham and friends brought to you by ctbk cpas and business consultants ctbk is more than just a full service accounting firm they are one team with an innovative approach to accounting and rise to each new challenge with collaborative problem solving skills CTBK goes above and beyond by lending helping hands in the Buffalo and Niagara communities through volunteer work and donations and has partnered up with Victory Sports for 2022 to help keep kids in the community active. The professionals at CTBK are determined to help individuals and businesses succeed. Whether a large corporation, a small business, or somewhere in between, call CTBK at 716-630-2400 and see what CTBK's one-team approach can do for you.